Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a tempting collection of this week's coverage from across our content. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu this week, Samsung's leap into connected cars, an anti-corruption hotline in Sierra Leone, and a concise history of nothing. But first, the new nationalism was our cover line this week. Donald Trump's campaign war cry to put America first propelled him into the White House, and it's made him the latest recruit to an angry, dangerous nationalism, our cover line explained. For the first time since the Second World War, the great and rising powers are simultaneously in thrall to various sorts of chauvinism. Like Mr Trump, leaders of countries such as Russia, China and Turkey embrace a pessimistic view that foreign affairs are often a zero-sum game in which global interests compete with national ones. Nationalism isn't necessarily bad, we explained. At its best, it can serve to unify a country around shared values. This civic nationalism is conciliatory and forward-looking. The nationalism of the Peace Corps, say, or Canada's inclusive patriotism or German support for the home team as hosts of the 2006 World Cup. Civic nationalism appeals to universal values, such as freedom and equality. Yet there's a striking contrast with the notion of ethnic nationalism. Which is zero-sum, aggressive and nostalgic, and which draws on race or history to set the nation apart. In its darkest hour in the first half of the 20th century, ethnic nationalism led to war. And while this divisive strain is thriving around the world... The world's greatest experiment in post-nationalism has founded. The architects of what was to become the EU believe that nationalism, which had dragged Europe into two ruinous world wars, would wither and die. But it's this project itself whose existence is under threat. The British have voted to leave, and in former communist countries such as Poland and Hungary, power has passed to xenophobic ultra-nationalists. There is even a small but growing threat that France might quit and so destroy the EU. You can read the rest of our coverage exploring the global impact of a resurgent ethnic nationalism, including an in-depth report in our international section in this week's issue. Flipping through now to our China section, we report on a resurfacing form of camaraderie in the Communist Party. The country's president would like party comrades to start addressing each other as such, but the idea has drawn derision, as the article explained. Xi Jinping has a dream that his country will experience a great rejuvenation, that its smoggy skies will clear and that Communist Party members will call each other comrade once more. A recent directive said a revival of the form of address would promote equality and democracy among the party's 88 million members. Strangely enough, the public is pouring scorn on the idea, as Mr Xi appears blind to the word's current meaning. In fact, the word Tongji literally meaning same aspirations, is still in common use. These days, however, it is a synonym for 
gay. This isn't the first time the president has tried to reclaim the word for the party. Even when officials discarded many obsolete rules in 2014, they said comrade should still be used instead of popular terms like boss or brother. Comrade reflects a virtuous tradition, according to Study Times, a party journal. The campaign to resurrect it is part of a wider one to discipline party members. This also involves more rigorous collection of membership fees, amounting to between 0.5% and 2% of annual salary. Payment of them is being described as a concrete means to affirm loyalty. Defaulters have been asked to cough up dues going as far back as 2008. So as China's communist comrades go about reluctantly cementing their loyalty, we turn to our Middle East and Africa section, where an article reports on a novel idea to uproot corruption. Sierra Leone is grappling with a deep-seated graft problem, so might a new hotline help? At a busy intersection in downtown Freetown, motorbike taxi drivers wait for customers. They pass the time telling tales of petty corruption. Yesterday I was chased by two policemen, says a young man, slouched forward on his bike seat. They told me I was violating a law when I wasn't, and confiscated my motorbike. I had to pay 100,000 leones, that's $18, to get it back. Two other drivers butt in, eager to trump his story with their own. It isn't that hard to find tales of corruption in the West African country. A survey carried out in 2013 by Transparency International, an advocacy group, shows the country to have the highest rates of bribery in the world. Some 84% of respondents admitted to having paid a bribe. Corruption runs so deep that it is hard to eliminate. Nonetheless, some are trying, as one new scheme shows. The project provides a hotline, a phone app and a web portal for citizens anonymously to report everyday corruption. The toll-free number goes through to a call centre staffed by two softly-spoken young women, Lucy and Geneba. They sit patiently in front of computers and listen to tinny jazz on their headsets while waiting for calls to come in. Miles Davis's Freddie Freeloader springs to mind, or perhaps John Coltrane's Dial Africa. While that rather relaxing-sounding scheme is a step in the right direction, it's an uphill struggle. Pay no bribe has yet to create a culture of accountability. Few policemen, for example, seem even to have heard of it so far. Though perhaps they're not going out of their way to find it. In our science and technology podcast, Babbage, we examined the culture of accountability in online media. In the aftermath of the American election, platforms such as Facebook and Google have come under fire for not policing the spread of unverified news. Here's our deputy editor, Tom Standage, explaining the conundrum at the heart of the issue. If you actually tried to do more than just, you know, not just shut off the ad money, but actually not show them in the feed at all, that's a much more difficult challenge. The problem with that is, and lots of people are looking at this, how can you determine which news sources are trustworthy and and so on? And that's not just a data science problem, that's a political problem. Because even if you have systems which sort of say, well, the New York Times seems to be quite credible and people seem to click on it and not complain, you can game those systems. Our Babbage show is available each Wednesday. So for more discussion on all things science and technology, download it to hear more. Some news in India this week may have seemed rather unbelievable to many. A decision to suddenly remove the two highest cash denominations from circulation took the country by surprise. On our Money Talks podcast, South Asia business and finance correspondent Stan Pinyal 
explained the knock-on effects of the move and the reasons for it. All sorts of little things seem to have come in the way. So a new note that was launched for 2,000 rupees actually doesn't work in ATMs. They all need to be recalibrated. And that hasn't happened. And it couldn't happen because the whole thing was completely secret. The government argues that in order for this scheme to be successful, people had to be surprised. Otherwise, people holding these stocks of so-called black money would have liquidated them beforehand. And you can download our Money Talks podcast covering business, finance and economics every Tuesday. India is coming to terms with the new gaps in its monetary system, but it was a bet on connection that caught our eye this week in the business world. An article read between the lines of Samsung's biggest deal yet. On November 14th, the South Korean company said it would pay $8 billion for Harman, a firm based in Stamford, Connecticut, that makes internet-connected audio, information and security systems for cars. This deal wasn't just about boosting speakers, however. Though it is best known for its sound systems, Harman is one of the world's largest supplier of smart parts for connected cars that help owners to drive by linking to the internet and to chip-enabled devices. These products are the first step towards autonomous vehicles. Over 30 million cars use Harman's audio and other kits in offerings from real-time traffic reports to augmented reality alerts on braking distances. By 2022, revenue from this connectivity will rise to $155 billion from $45 billion now, according to Strategy and a consultancy. The deal thus gives Samsung a firm foothold in the futuristic end of the automotive market. With our feet firmly on planet Earth, we step straight into the nothingness of the universe. Our books and art section featured a review of Void, The Strange Physics of Nothing, a book that explores the seemingly empty nature of space. Most of the universe is empty, so it is natural that a great deal of modern physics concerns nothing or rather, the precise nature of the nothing that permeates the cosmos. It's only in the past century that scientists' understanding of this nothingness has been shaken up and filled in. Ideas about gravity and motion, put in place by Isaac Newton in the 17th century, were overturned by the work of Albert Einstein. The dawn of quantum mechanics revolutionised physicists' understanding of the very small, but the theory's conclusions were so counterintuitive that Einstein was never able to reconcile himself with them. And if Einstein couldn't manage it, well, how are we supposed to? The review guides us through those who stand on the shoulders of giants to arrive at our current thinking about space. Quantum mechanics and quantum electrodynamics, a theory that merges quantum theory with Maxwell's electromagnetism, would later reveal that even an apparently empty vacuum resembles, at small enough scales, a boiling sea of particles that constantly pop in and out of existence. Such concepts are difficult to describe, explained our reviewer, but it was other notable absences that caused real confusion. More difficult to understand is the book's failure to mention the work of any female physicists in its pages – also missing from the account is Henrietta Swan Levitt's work on Cepheid variables, pulsating stars which would become a yardstick for the expansion of the universe. Glaring omissions, we thought, though rather apt. These oversights mar an otherwise engaging and interesting account, but perhaps it is natural that a history of space should have a few 
gaping holes. And if there are any gaps in your knowledge you'd like to fill or just explore, why not pick up a copy of this week's issue? I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. Don't forget to give us your feedback by emailing radio at economist.com or via Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. 